Democracy, bridging facts and norms. Right, I'm, I'm David Miller, um, Professor of Political Theory at Oxford. Um, so I have a long academic career behind me, I suppose, now. And uh, I first began, I studied philosophy and politics, philosophy at Cambridge and politics at Oxford, and began working in it originally on uh, social justice, which was my doctoral thesis, and it's been a continuing interest of mine uh, throughout my career, actually. But in, uh, along it, I've also uh, worked on a number of other topics, uh, including in the, uh, in the 1980s, uh, I was very interested in debates about concept of market socialism. And that led me, I think, in the, uh, in the 90s to interests in questions of citizenship, nationality, uh, and democracy. Um, in connection, originally in connection with that, but then later on as a free, a freestanding uh, uh, subject, so I wrote on nationality, but still contained, retained an interest in questions of social justice. And then like many people in the, in the recent period, uh, I've begun to think about questions that cross national and state borders, global questions, and um, so questions about human rights, questions about global justice, and this most recently, uh, questions about immigration, the political philosophy of immigration, where I've just finished uh, writing a book on that particular subject. So I think, I mean, I hope that a sort of theme that's run through my work has been uh, the attempt to uh, work between more philosophical analysis of concepts and principles and the use of uh, various kinds of social scientific evidence to support political theories. May I ask you why you chose to do your research in political theory and not more in applied uh, political sciences? Well, I think I've, I've, I suppose really, I mean, I'm, I'm interested, not that I'm disparaged political science at all, but I'm interested in the normative question, you know, how should we live? How should we organize our lives together? Uh, I think that's a very important question to ask. So, and I think my, um, my particular skill is in, on that side of things. So, um, I haven't set out to be, um, a sort of first order empirical researcher. What I've tried to do is, uh, assimilate and use the research that other people have done to illuminate questions in political philosophy. And I think that you know, everybody has their particular, I think, skill and, 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 and bent. And my, mine, I think, has been to try to, to integrate those two fields. And how do you select which kind of empirical research are going to be relevant to your own studies? Because it's often mm. in social sciences, we have lots of results that sometimes contradict each other. And yet we choose to give some more importance to some of these results in our theories. Um, and then is the question, how, how do we select? Uh, do you take the highest numbers of results that show a certain result? Mm. Or, or do you take the the scientific um, or the researchers that you know have done a particularly good study or how to select in, in a sense which facts we're going to rely on when doing political theory? Yes, I think um, you, what, you, what you look for are points of agreement among different researchers. So um, I'm a little, uh, some little time back when I was working on uh, theories of social justice, uh, I did a large study of the empirical work that's been done on people's perceptions of justice and on their, what's sometimes called their justice behavior. That's how people actually act in situations where they have to make some kind of allocation. 
And so there are a huge number of surveys and experiments and so on. But actually, I think you can see, though there are going to be some specific differences, there are some quite strong common themes that you can see coming through this. And uh, interestingly, these sometimes... So for example, just to give an example, I think that... Uh, the, the, what you might call a common, the common sense idea of justice, the one that people actually use in practice. The idea of desert plays a very large part. Right? The people think that when people uh, make a contribution or you know, create more goods or work harder, they, they, they deserve to get more. That's a very, a very widespread, and you can see this running right through the empirical evidence. If you look at theories of justice, Rawls, Nozick, whoever, you know, you find that um, that, that, that idea plays a very small part. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of dissonance between the, um, the, 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 the theory and what you find on the ground. And that's very interesting. And uh, uh, then you begin to ask, well, why is it that uh, these philosophers have paid so little attention to an idea that seems very important? In, but, but, but as I say, you, um, rather than select one piece of evidence, you try to look for commonalities across, um, across many. So more recently, I was trying to do some work looking at, and this was different, different kind of empirical research, I, I wrote this paper called Testing the National Identity Argument, where I tried to survey uh, with, with a collaborator um, all of the studies that have been done on the effects of national identification on people's attitudes towards uh, redistribution, social justice, and so on and so forth. Um, and again, trying to sort of see whether there were commonalities that run through. That was more difficult, actually. Um, I, th I found that a very hard task. Uh, partly, I think, and the problem partly was that the conceptualizations being used by the empirical researchers didn't fit with uh, the theoretical concepts often. So there were, there were apparently contradictory findings but I felt that these were sometimes ex explained by people conceptualizing ideas like national attachment, national loyalty, whatever, in, in different ways. So that's difficult then. Um, I think one of the things you find, uh, I mean, I've had this experience, occasionally I've gone to colleagues and said to them, look, could you, could you insert this question into your next questionnaire, right? Uh, and they look at the question and say, no, we can't do that because people would not understand the question you're asking and the way you want it to understand it. So, that, so there's always this, going to be this problem that the questions that sort of work in the sense that they can be incorporated into uh, questionnaires and so forth or other kinds of study won't necessarily be exactly the one that the theorist wants to ask. So it's quite a difficult operation. Uh, yeah, so then does it mean that we would need some sort of translators to work between political theorists and empirical political scientists? Or who could do that work of translating what we mean as concepts in mm. political theory and what can be oper operationalized in empirical studies? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I mean, um, and it's made more difficult by the fact that as political science progresses, the level of technical expertise that's required um, also increases. So I think the, the new generation of political scientists are often highly trained in quantitative techniques, but that doesn't necessarily go with a great deal of sensitivity to, for example, conceptual questions. So uh, it's going to be quite hard to, to find the kind of um, 
you know, all-round person who has both of those talents, actually. Um, and so maybe the, the uh, only future is through, is through collaborative work. Uh, actually, I think that um, democratic theory is one of the areas where I think there's been more um, cross-fertilization, more collaboration than in other areas of, of political theory. So, for example, um, the uh, literature on deliberative democracy, I think, is, is, a, good, is a good case where you have got um, quite sophisticated theoretical form formulations, but also quite a lot now of empirical work on deliberation, uh, you know, experimental work, other kinds of work, looking at um, uh, cons you know, consultations, citizens' juries, these kinds of things. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's probably, the collaborations are much stronger in that area than, for example, in the justice area. So th that would be a quite a promising area, I think, for, I mean, it's not the only, the deliberative democracy uh, field is not the only field in which, I think, um, theory and practice need to come together. I mean, I've recently been doing some thinking, sort of work about problems of democracy in divided societies, often you know, strong, sharply divided societies. And uh, clearly there's quite a, it's a long sort of political sociological literature. But I think that doesn't always feed into discussions of democratic theory in the way that it should. In other words, I think democratic theory probably hasn't sufficiently addressed what you might call the minority problem, let's say. Um, we sort of know that there's a problem uh, for a democracy if you know, one group is, is a persistent minority. But I think we haven't really, um, we, we, we tend not to take that as seriously as we should in democratic theory, but in real world democracy, it's very often a major problem. Perhaps not so much in the, uh, many of the um, most developed democracies, but in many of the other ones, it's a really serious problem. So again, that's an area I think where there's, there's room for more interchange and collaboration. So would you call this approach of uh, taking seriously what happens in politics uh, non-ideal theory or realism or there are all those labels that mm. are sometimes hard to distinguish. So what approach would it be in your conception of approaches mm -hmm. to political theory to take these facts seriously yes. and introduce them in political theory? Yes. I mean, I, I've not, I don't find the, um, this discussion about ideal and non-ideal theory helpful, except in the very specific sense that was originally used by Rawls. In other words, I think there is an issue about what individuals should do uh, under conditions in which um, principles of justice are not properly being followed. So there's, a, there's an individual level question. So, so in that sense, ideal, non-ideal makes it works. But, it, but in political theory in general, um, I mean, there is, so there's an issue in political theory, political philosophy which is how much of what we see around us we should take for granted as being part of the, the givens against which political philosophy has to proceed. I mean, everybody thinks that um, there are some givens, you know, that there are two human genders, for example, that's the kind of, we just take that as given, um, though it's a bit more complicated than that, but nonetheless, that's basically sort of, that's something we don't. So there are certain things we take as givens. And then the issue is what other things um, to take and whatnot, but that's a, that's a substantive question within political philosophy and I think um, the one of the sort of success criteria, criteria of political philosophy is precisely that it gets that right. So it's not that there are two kinds of theory, 
as it's sometimes suggested, it's rather that there's an ongoing debate within political philosophy about whether, um, take a question like, should, you, should we assume uh, the state as a given? Right? That, that's a substantive question uh, that, that a political philosophy has to address. You have to make a judgment about that. So I, I, I rather reject that non-ideal ideal distinction in favor of a question about um, you know, how far should political philosophy embrace a specific set of feasibility constraints on its, on its findings, things that we have to take as given for purposes of theorizing. I think that's a much more fruitful way of asking the question. And then probably those uh, feasibility constraints that you adopt mm -hmm. will have an impact on the kind of theory you will develop. Yeah. And then what do we do if it's later shown or that someone makes an argument that is very convincing to say that those feasibility constraints are actually not true and that, well, there can't be a society without a state, so we shouldn't mm. start from that premise. What does it imply for the theory that we made if someone says, well, no, sorry, your basic assumption is wrong? Right. Well, that, that's a very good example of where um, uh, empirical, argument, empirical evidence and, and, and so on it comes into political theory. So somebody, of course, somebody can say that, um, but to make that in any way a convincing claim, you would have to then produce evidence that that's the case. So, so that's exactly the, I mean, one, not the only role, but one of the main roles that uh, empirical evidence uh, is, is, gives us. It, it, it informs us about the boundaries of feasibility. Um, but we should cast the net wide. I mean, we shouldn't just look at um, things that happen around in societies like ours. We should look more widely as well to, to get, that, get the answer to that question correct. Uh, you said in the beginning that it is important to discuss about the normative ideals of mm. our societies. Um, what is, in your opinion, the aim of doing political theory? Right. Um, well, um, of course, uh, there's a, there, there is an in, internal aim to um, you know get things right, but it's not. It can't just be that. I think it, it's to inform uh, public public in a democratic society. It informs public discussion. It, it provides the basic concepts and frameworks within which political debate should be carried on. And of course, it takes a while for these ideas to diffuse into the into public discourse, but they do eventually. And um, if you look at the sort of vocabulary of politics, the kinds of principles people uh, appeal to, and so on, you'll see that they shift over time. And political philosophy is always uh, influencing that. Uh, it's educating people, it's educating future decision makers and so on. Um, so, so I think it, it, it has a kind of guiding role within a democratic society. It would be different in a different kind of society, but in this sort. But, so it, it always has these two, it has an academic uh, aspect where you simply are trying to um, you know, develop the, the best account of what justice requires, something like that. But then it has this public account side too, where what you're trying to do is provide principles that people could actually use in, in making policy decisions. And then does it mean, if it has an impact in democratic societies, does it mean that political theory could also harm societies by providing ideals that are so far away from reality that it could have bad impacts? And if that's the case, uh, do we have a responsibility towards the society in which we discuss and to which we provide guidance, uh, normative principles? Yes, I, 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 I do think that. I mean, I think that um, uh, there, because 
it's important always to be aware that um, claims made in an academic and theoretical context sometimes can be taken up and used in ways that the person perhaps making them wouldn't have anticipated. So, uh, and I think, for example, that um, uh, when in, in discussions about, for example, the circumstances in which the use of force or violence is legitimate, uh, I think one should be aware that you could, you could have a kind of academic discussion about whether, for example, um, I've had these discussions about whether people in poverty would be justified in using forceful means to take uh, property or, or territory from rich states. And there's, there's, you could have an academic discussion about this. I think when you have it, you should be aware that there's at least a possibility that some of the things you say might be taken away and developed in a way that you wouldn't that would be would be dangerous um, so I think there is a responsibility on the part of uh, political philosophers to think a bit about how the ideas they're using might be employed so for example when you consider questions of nationalism and migration mm -hmm. do you um, take into account the fact that it might be referred to uh, in actual policy making yes I do think I do think about that yeah. um, because obviously there you you, you, you hope if you um, if you if you develop a theory that the people would would take it seriously um, and so yeah you need to be aware I think that uh, the, the words you write might at some later point you know somebody might use them to defend a policy that you might not be happy with and then you should think a bit about whether that's you should take steps to avoid that yeah. and is that part of what you call uh, doing political theory in a democratic way and this attitude of political theorists who should be modest towards what citizens think that's something mm -hmm. that you mentioned in the in your article about political theory for earthlings mm -hmm. that political theory should be democratic and I would like to know exactly what you mean by that um, well, I think I think it should be democratic. It should engage with the, um, the 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 set of political ideas that people have already. I mean, it shouldn't just defer to them. Uh, it should interrogate them, clarify them, and so on, and so on. But it should work with them. I think it should try and communicate to people out there. Uh, you know, using language, using terms. Um, so I, I'm very against um, the, the style in which political theory is written. It's often written in a very opaque, very academic, uh, very convoluted, actually, way. Um, and I've always tried, not always successfully, <laughs> to write in a way that a, an intelligent citizen could sort of pick it up and uh, can read it and sort of understand what was going on. And I think that's, so even the way you write, I think, is part of this. But it's also a matter of, um, and this was what I was talking about when I was discussing the work on justice, to try to, if you're building a theory of justice, um, this should respond to, I think, uh, the way that people actually think in practice about justice. So say you can interrogate, and in some cases you can say what people actually are, um, you know, con hold contradictory views or views that are at odds with the evidence or whatever, but... Nonetheless, you work with the, the, the concepts that people have. And I think that is part of making political philosophy uh, relevant and important to people in a, in a democracy. Thank you very much. Brought to you by democracynet.eu.